Thanks. <clears throat> if you're visiting this morning and you have joined us as we've just started this series, Josh kicked it off last week, Nehemiah chapter 1, and so this week we're in Nehemiah chapter 2. Next week we will not be in Nehemiah chapter 3, but in Nehemiah chapter 4. We're not doing Nehemiah chapter 3. Why aren't we doing it? Well, you read it and you'll see why. I'll refer to Nehemiah chapter 3 when we come to do our anniversary service because it has some good truths in it. Um, but I have preached the message on it before, but I don't feel like doing it this time. So there will be an outline, I'm sure. If you're following the life group books, I commend those to you. The studies, the first five studies of those are available this morning in the foyer and that'll have the outline with the dates and the Bible reading and the passages. And let me challenge you and encourage you to read through the book of Nehemiah. And if you have some extra time, then it would be a great experience to in fact read Esther, Ezra and then Nehemiah. Because <clears throat> you get Esther who starts this part of the history of the Jewish people towards the end of the exile, uh, saving God's people. And you get Ezra bringing back the first um, couple of waves of the Jewish people. Now in Nehemiah, the story continues and we have the third wave of Jewish people returning and particularly with the job of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem in order to bring not only protection to God's people, but honour to God's name. Um, while I was away, uh, before our pulpit had broken a couple of times and the management team have graciously gone out and bought this really nice new fangled dangled one. This is the first time I've preached at it. I'm going to have to go buy a smaller Bible. <laughs> <clears throat> um, or write on smaller paper. At the moment, my eyes are blind and so I write really large on the notes that I have in front of me. I'm just going to have to adapt. Nehemiah chapter 2 falls into two parts. Let me outline the two parts for you and then before I read to you uh, the scriptures. The two parts um, almost duplicate one another and um, it starts off with something favourable. You have Nehemiah in Susa, in Persia, and in the second part you have him in Jerusalem. You have him having a favourable response from the king in chapter in the first part, verses 1 to 10. And in verse 8, he finishes with his statement about how the gracious hand of my God um, was upon me. In the second part, you have him in Jerusalem and you have a very favourable response of the people. And you have him saying in verse 18, I told them about the gracious hand of my God who was upon me and what the king had said to me. And then back in the first part, the last little bit you get, and the opposition of some people, that where God works, there is always going to be opposition to it, just like Leona said to us through telling us about Bloom and Satan's reaction to it. And in the second part, uh, you also get the same characters, but this rising opposition to the work of God. So it's deliberately structured. Nehemiah chapter 1 is Nehemiah basically in private. Nehemiah chapter 2 is Nehemiah more in public, his public duties, both in the capital, in Susa, capital of Persia, and also in Jerusalem, the capital city of God's people. I want to read to you now Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. And I invite you to follow in your Bibles and encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. And if you didn't bring your Bible, then we provide the text for you on the screen. In the month of Nisan, which is like end of November, early December, say, let's say December, end of the year. <clears throat> no, that's wrong. It's April. Sorry. It's a great, great start, isn't it? <clears throat> The one above that, Kislev, back in chapter 1, that's November, December. So this is now April, this is like four months later, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, uh, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. 
Uh, I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This is nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, our mission statement as a church, obviously, that the purpose of our church is to work with God in transforming people into passionate followers of Jesus, working with God. But God is already active and involved in the world and he is at work and we need to observe what he is doing and join him in it. He likewise works within us, motivating us, directing us, compelling us, sometimes dramatically calling us, sometimes just slowly, often just influencing us and leading us in a direction. Often in discerning the mind and the will of God of what he's doing, you get greater wisdom by looking backwards than you do by looking forwards. When you look forward, sometimes it can become quite difficult, can't it, to know what exactly is God's will for us. But in looking back, you can see the circumstances and the developments and um, a lecturer once told me that's exactly how the Jewish people used to do it. They used to step into the future backwards by looking to their past of how had God led them in the past that gave them clues about the direction to go forward in the future. The reality is for us too that life has a way of tarnishing the silver linings. <clears throat> the world we live in is broken, it's flawed, it's not perfect. There's a bloke by the name of Murphy who has a law. You probably know it. If anything can go wrong, it will go wrong at the most inopportune time. There are many variations of this law and though some of them may cause us to chuckle and they're a bit exaggerated, nonetheless they're refracting some sort of reality. For instance, here is another one, a variation of it. The other line is always moves faster. That line applies to supermarkets, to banks, to the road, to all sorts of things. You swap lanes, your lane will slow down. Is that true or not true? You ask my wife, it's true. Stay in the lane that you're in, stop moving. <clears throat> and then if you change lanes, then the line that you were originally in will start to move faster. It's true, isn't it? All the papers that you have been storing up over the years or all the tools that you've been saving or whatever, you, will, you save them until you need them and then you decide that to give them away and it's not until you give them away that suddenly you need it. And then some wag once commented that Murphy, in fact, was an optimist. It's much worse than what even he was saying. <clears throat> Things don't always go smoothly, that's the point. Even as followers of Jesus, even if we've prayed about it, there are speed bumps and detours and roadblocks and there are frustrations just by living in this world. Following Jesus is no guarantee of a troubled, free life. And part of the maturity, in fact, of following the Lord Jesus is that we learn to deal with life's frustrations, that he develops us through them. So here we are in the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is a guy who is committed to serving God, doing what God wants, God's will. And it's not all going to be smooth sailing. It's going to be successful. He's going to achieve God's purposes. But he's going to go through some rough patches. So for us, the realities of working with God, today's message, here it is, to work with God in this realistic world we'll need to do three things, which is what Nehemiah does in this passage. We need to learn to wait on him and his timing. We need to learn to wait on God and his timing. I spend most of my time this morning talking about that. We need to, secondly, develop skills on working with people. God expects us to be working with others, working with people. And then, because all good sermons have three points, I made up a third point by pinching it out of the second point, 
which is you need to wrestle with opponents. It's really working with people. Sometimes the people you've got to work with might be discouraged or whatever, or sometimes they're actually opposing you. They're still people. So they're the, my three points this morning. You have to wait on God and his timing, work with people, but also you need to wrestle sometimes against opponents. It's exactly what the Lord Jesus did when he was here, and so we're following him. Excuse me. To work with God, we need to learn to wait on him. Nehemiah chapter 1, which is where I made the blunder, verse 1. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, that's what, November, December, something like that. And then chapter 2 opens with, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year. The year starts at a different time to us, obviously. It's gone from this year to four months later. Nehemiah had heard a report and he prays, chapter 1, verse 11. O Lord, let my ear be attentive, uh, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. Four months ago, he prayed that prayer and probably prayed that prayer every day since, for four months, 120 days or whatever. From the time he heard about what was going on, he started praying and he wanted to get involved. He had to learn to wait on God. It's a common pattern through the scriptures. And I wonder what's happening in your life right now. If God has actually got you on hold, that he's got you in a waiting pattern. Not without reason. He never does anything without a reason. Abraham had to wait 25 years for Isaac. Joseph had to wait several years when he was in prison to get out of it. Moses had to wait 40 years in the wilderness. David had to wait 20 years before running from Saul, before he actually became king. The Apostle Paul was locked up, went into Arabia for three years, but also got locked up for a few years. The Lord Jesus himself sent for 30 years as a carpenter, waiting God's time. Those whom God is going to use, those whom God does use, must learn to wait on him. It's a lot easier said than done. But it's something that we have to acquire. One commentator tells the story of William Booth, <clears throat> the founder of the Salvation Army, who when he had finished his apprenticeship, then spent the next 12 months unemployed. He couldn't find work anywhere and his widowed mother was in a desperate situation and needed his assistance and he couldn't provide it. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed and the heavens were like brass for 12 months. But during those 12 months, he also experienced poverty like he had never had before in his life, which was preparing him for his future work in the founding of the Salvation Army. Waiting time is not wasted time. It may feel like it when you're in the midst of it, but those whom God is going to use need to learn to wait on him. Well, while Nehemiah was waiting, he does three things. So here are three things for us to grapple with as we likewise may be waiting on God. While Nehemiah waited, he prayed. We already alluded to that back in chapter 1, verses 5 to 11, gives a summary of that sort of prayer. But in fact, as you read through Nehemiah, you'll come across about 11, 12 times that it talks about him in prayer. He was a man who, in every situation and every circumstance of life, looked to the heavens, looked to God. That was his response. Here's the bad news in chapter 1, he prays. He uh, gets caught out in chapter 2. His first response, he prays. Might be a very short prayer, but he prays. He's the example of the individual who prays without ceasing. 
which doesn't mean that he prays non-stop and doesn't do anything else. It means it's like having a cough <clears throat> that you can't, a hacking cough that you can't get rid of. It's a continuous cough. It's not happening all the time, but it's happening continuously. Does that make sense? That seems to be the sort of person that he was. Anyway, we find ourselves in chapter 2 in the providence of God. What was God doing for those four months? Working things out, lining things up. What was Nehemiah doing for those four months? I think he was putting on a brave face and pretending to be as good as he possibly could in the job that he was doing. One commentator wanted to suggest that in fact Nehemiah staged this, that he grew impatient, that he got sick of waiting four months and one day he decided that he would be sad. And the king said, what's the matter with you? Oh, here's my opportunity. I don't think so. Because the text actually says that Nehemiah was afraid. He was taking his life into his own hands. To be sad in the presence of the king was to dishonour the king. The king is the most significant, most important person on the planet. And just to be in his presence, your problems would be put to the back of your mind because you were so pleased and so happy to be in the presence of the king. To be sad in the presence of the king? Something's wrong. You're not respecting me, the king. And it was not unheard of in the ancient world for the king to behead such individuals. That's why the text says, and Nehemiah was afraid. The king noticed that he was sad. For four months he had kept it in, but somehow now it had popped out. And in the midst of being terrified, what's his first reaction? He prays. Chapter 2, verse 4. The king said to me, what do you want? I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. It wasn't a long prayer. <clears throat> he didn't say, I'll get back to you on that and go off into some corner and kneel down and pray and do that it was an arrow prayer it's those prayers that you pray um, when you're driving the car it's those prayers you send out very quickly some of you may have the habit as you follow Jesus if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus that you rely only upon that sort of prayer that you only send up quickies I used to call them telegram prayers but they don't have telegrams anymore now do they you send a text message to God then Short, concise, succinct. But for Nehemiah, that succinct prayer was based upon four months of prayer. He had a balance in his life that we need to have in our lives, that we need to develop the spiritual discipline of daily prayer with God and then in the midst of life circumstances, also staying in touch with the Heavenly Father. That's certainly what Nehemiah was doing. While he was waiting, he did three things. Number one, he prayed. Let us pray as we wait. Number two, he was patient. Waiting reveals our impatience and in fact waiting helps us to develop patience. Patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit and this is something that God wants to develop in all of his followers. For all of those who are following the Lord Jesus, he wants us to be growing in patience. I wonder how that's going for you. I'm much more patient now than I was 20 years ago and I'm not a patient person now. But I'm growing in it, incrementally. About that much, I would say, in 20 years. An impatient leader, particularly. Uh, God wants leaders to be patient because an impatient leader, if they just react, can do damage. I'll never forget that lesson in a church when a very wise lady, a dear friend, still a friend, came to me one day and she said, Daryl, don't react, respond. That's a great distinction. Don't react respond 
Sometimes you may need to take time out or think or pray and consider, but respond, don't react. Pass that advice on to you. Derek Kidner, a commentator, makes the comment, and I think he's correct. Nehemiah seems to be an activist with a natural bent for swift decisions. Chapter 1, verse 11, he hears the bad news and he prays and he says, God, give me favour in the presence of the king today. Let him make it favourable today. I want to get on with it. That's how he seems to be. And perhaps that's the job of a cupbearer as well. You need to make quick decisions, don't you? You know, he tastes the wine or he tastes the food or whatever it is. He has to give a quick response to the king that this is okay. He can't linger over it. Um, <clears throat> but that even though Nehemiah seems to have that bent in his personality, while he is waiting in these four months, he is displaying patience. He didn't rush into the presence of the king when he got the news. He didn't ask for a leave of absence straight away because God was calling him to go to Jerusalem. For four months, he kept this burden within, prayed to God about it in private. He waited until God opened the door of opportunity for him. He was patient. When he, in fact, arrives in Jerusalem, in the second part of the story, he is patient. He does nothing for three days. I think probably for three days he's resting up after months, four or five months on the road, you know, travelling to get there. So he's exhausted and tired. That's part of it. But I think he's also planning and thinking and preparing. He's patient. He's not rushing into it. He's getting the lay of the land. He didn't ride in with the big impressive army that he had with him and with a big load of lumber that he had got from the king's forest and turned up and said, here I am, I'm here to do this job, I hold a press conference, meet me in an hour, let's get started. Didn't do that. Waited patiently for three days. And even then, at the end of the three days, he proceeds cautiously. He does it under cover of night. Because I think, text doesn't say, but I think he's suspicious about some of the nobles and leaders who are in Jerusalem who have alliances with the enemy. As you read through Nehemiah, that will emerge, that that, in fact, is what happens. And I think even at this stage, he is very cautious and he's gathering data, he's anticipating objections, he's preparing himself. That's what we need to do when we're waiting, to be patient and to prepare. The God who works through the process of sowing and reaping, patience, is the God that we are working with. So while Nehemiah waited on God, he did so patiently. He prayed and he was patient and he planned. Number three, the passage seems to me to reveal that Nehemiah did a fair bit of thinking and planning because when the king asks him a question, when will you be gone? How long will you be gone? Nehemiah can answer him, gives him a time frame. We're going to be gone for this long. And it seems that... Um, he was also, when he was praying, was also listening to God because he's developed some uh, a resource list and he's bold and courageous enough to ask this king who seems favourably disposed towards him for some letters. Letters to the governors for safe passage, letters to the keeper of the king's forest, the local sawmill, so that he can get timbers for the walls and for the house that he's going to build. He planned when he arrived in Jerusalem for those three days. He planned. What strikes me as interesting, just as an aside, here is Nehemiah who receives this devastating news and he's almost shattered by it. But he's got to get up and go to work the next day in the presence of the king and he does so. And he's praying in private and he's working in public and it's unknown for four months that his heart is breaking about this issue. He was able to perform his function with competency even though his heart was somewhere else. 
Here's a lesson for all of us if you're involved in the workforce in any secular way. Do your best job at work. It's our responsibility as followers of the Lord Jesus. If you know and profess him to be your Lord and Saviour, be the best employer that you can be. Nehemiah was a valued cupbearer to the king. How long will you be gone? He was trusted. And also notice, because he's doing this while he's uh, waiting, he's praying, he's patient, and he's planning. Planning and praying are not mutually exclusive. It's not more spiritual to not plan. It's not unspiritual to plan. And it's not going to the other extreme. It is unhealthy, unwise to so elaborately plan that you never consult God, that you exclude God from all of your deliberations. Those two extremes ought to be avoided. No planning, I'm just trusting God to over-planning and never consulting God. The balance is in the middle, that I will pray and listen to what God is saying and I'll give it my best thought and my best ideas. I'll do the best I can to plan and to organise. But I won't rely just upon what I'm doing, I'll be relying upon God. That's why when we wait, we need to pray. Keep on praying, be patient and also plan. Waiting on God is not a wasted time. It's time of development. Second point, if we're going to work with God in this realistic world, we need to develop the skill of waiting on Him. If we're going to work with God in this realistic world, in this fallen world, then we need to learn the skills of working with people. The Lord requires us to work with one another and we're all flawed. We're all broken in some capacity. We all have weaknesses and we all have dysfunctions. We may start out idealistic in the realms when we're younger, We're going to save the world. And decades later, it's really limping forward. I remember being a school teacher, and I remember other much older school teachers than I was, because I was just starting out. They They were great teachers, and they loved teaching. But they would often say, teaching is the best profession in the world if only there were no students. I know pastors who say, Pastoring is the best job in the world if only there were no people. The ideal ministry would be a radio ministry. You go talk into a microphone, you don't have to look at anybody, talk to anybody, deal with any cranky audience. That would be an ideal ministry, wouldn't it? No. God expects and requires and wants us to be working with people, to learn the skills. He wants us to join ministries and you can be so excited about it, enthusiastic about it. Join a life group. We encourage all of you to join a life group. Then you're going to meet the real people who are in the group and it's going to be another experience. But that's the experience God wants you to have. He wants you to experience Murphy's laws. He wants you to grow through waiting on him, by being patient, by responding and not reacting. That great 20th century theologian Linus said, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. So the Lord Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep, care for my lambs, care for people, look after people, relate to people, work with people. That's God's will and intention for us. Well, in this passage, we find Nehemiah is doing exactly that. He has to deal first with an unbelieving boss the king. 
an absolute boss who could have executed him at his whim. Maybe you're in a work situation where you've got an unbelieving boss. Many of you will. Um, Notice that he was faithful and diligent, as I've already said. And one day when he was caught out that he appeared sad, he was raining on, excuse me, raining on the king's parade. Um, Then he was wise in his response. He prayed, but he had, because he had been performing faithfully, it lent integrity then to when he wanted to make his request. I hope that makes sense and translates to you and to your life at application. Nehemiah's task was certainly hard because this very king, back in Ezra chapter 4, verse 21, this very king had put a halt to the development of Jerusalem. In Ezra chapter 4, verse 21, he actually writes a letter and says, Stop work until I change my mind. Because the law of the Medes and Persians, you see, can't be changed. So he was Nehemiah with not only an unbelieving boss, but a guy who had been instrumental in stopping the very thing that Nehemiah wanted to achieve. He's got to reverse the decision, the policy of the king. So he prays, and he prays in chapter 2, verse 4. He performed faithfully, and he was very tactful and sensitive in the way he spoke about it. He personalises it. He doesn't just boldly say to the king about Jerusalem. That may have been a bit offensive and indelicate. He talks about, he personalises it, the place where his relatives and his families are buried that's lying in ruins. The king could identify with that. So Nehemiah developed the skill of being able to uh, work upwards, to work with people who were above him in leadership. He also had learnt the skills of uh, working with demoralised believers. When he arrives back in Jerusalem, the believers back there, certainly the the Jewish people back there, certainly believed in God and believed the promises and the covenant of God. But they'd lost hope. They were discouraged. They had tried, but they'd been hindered. They'd been successfully stopped. Maybe by now some of them even would want to resist any change to that sort of policy. Well, Nehemiah comes amongst them very carefully over three days, does his examination, gathers the resources. He's working with people. He's got a plan. He's got an agenda. Verse 17. When he is, time is right, he has a meeting and he calls the nobles and the people together and he states the problem very clearly, very plainly. Verse 17. You see the bad situation that we are in. We don't have to stay like this. And he identifies with the people. He doesn't say the bad situation that you're in. He says the bad situation that we are in. He identifies with them. And people will always listen better to those who are committed to them, not to the people who are making statements on the process of their exiting. We don't tend to listen to them. We tend to listen to the people who are committed to us. We're in this together. He appeals to them. If... uh, to a felt need, we will no longer feel reproach if we achieve this task. And then he told them, most importantly, that God was in this. He lifted their gaze from the problem and the difficulties to the great and powerful God who had orchestrated all of this. Verse 8, verse 18. Verse 12, he says, I didn't tell anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. God was working in him. That's how God works leading us, influencing us. So in us, working with God, let us develop the skills of working with people, not to manipulate, not to be people pleasers, but to achieve God's purposes, to work with integrity as followers of the Lord Jesus. If you've got unbelievers that you've got to influence and work with in your work situation or your home life, pray. 
Be confident in the performance of your duties. Always relate with tact and honesty, just like Nehemiah does. If it's with believers, then identify with them, speak the truth in love, and still the situation, and point them to God and to what God is doing. But of course, there are going to be some people who are more difficult, and they're the opponents. In working with God, we need sometimes to wrestle with opponents, because whenever God moves, Satan counter moves. When God works, Satan will hinder and oppose it. We all know that. There's a guy called Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem in this story and in this book. Sanballat is to the north. He's 12 miles away in Beth Haran. He's the Horonite. And he seems to have become and was or would become the governor of Samaria. You've got Tobiah who ruled over the Ammonites to the east and you've got Geshem the Arab who's down to the south. He's almost surrounded by these significant nobles and leaders, these political opponents. Verse 10, they are displeased. They can't stand anything good happening to Israel. Verse 19, they accuse, they ridicule and they mock. The tongue can be a very vicious weapon. They question his motives and they make all sorts of allegations. And this will more will emerge as we go through the book. There is a time in working with people and in working with opponents, there is a time in reacting, in responding, not reacting, of being diplomatic, of a soft answer turns away wrath, of meeting, of discussing, of compromising. There is a time that you can do that. But in this passage and in life, there is also a time when it's time to speak clearly and it's time to stand your ground and it's time to confront. That's what Nehemiah chooses to do here. Because their accusations were fictitious, they were inventing it. There was another motivation at work. He stands his ground. He meets them head on, just like Jesus did on a number of occasions. He draws a line in the sand and he basically says, it's time for God's people to step up and you're not part of God's people. It's time for you to stay away. Chapter 2, verse 20, God will give us success. Anytime God's people say, let's arise and build, the enemy will always say, let's arise and stop them. So we have to discern. In the process of working with people, we need to discern, <clears throat> are they with us or are they against us? Is this a time to speak softly or is this a time to confront and to push ahead? What situation do you find yourself in, in your life? Time's gone. So as we work with God in this world, realistically, in this fallen world, we need to learn to wait on him. We need to learn to work with people and there will be times when we have to wrestle with opponents and we've spoken about how to do that through prayer, through patience, through planning. Let me lead you in a prayer. I think we might close the service. I've taken far too long. How about we stand together please people? <clears throat> I'm going to pray and then after that I invite you one of two things. Uh, certainly to hang around and connect with one another and chat. We have morning sheep provided outside. If it's too cold out there, go outside and get a cuppa and come back inside and chat. But you might also be a person here this morning and you've got a need. You would like someone to pray with you and for you. Someone around you can do that. Or if you'd like someone else to do it, then I invite you to come forward. Simply sit in one of those chairs down the front and somebody will be here and they will pray with you and for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, thanks for that you haven't given up on us. In fact, you made the world, we ruined the world, and you're in the process of restoring it. You're still at work. You're a God of incredible love and power. 
and you invite us into a relationship with you and into a cooperative work with you. Lord, help us to observe and to join you in what you are doing. And if we are in a holding pattern, if it's a time of waiting, help us to do that well, to grow through it, to develop in prayer, to develop in patience, and to develop in planning. Lord, increase our skills of working with one another, whether they be unbelieving bosses or people of influence, be they discouraged believers, or even if they are opposing believers or unbelievers. Give us wisdom and grace to be faithful of working with you and seeing Jesus' purposes achieved. Thanks, Lord, for the story of Nehemiah, but thank you more than anything for the story of Jesus. Bless us this week in his name. And everybody said... Have a good week, everybody.